Dear colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the view from the Thorax Center for Radcliffe Cardiology. This time we review AHA 2023, and in this wrap-up we will highlight five late-breaking clinical trials. My name is Nicolas van Michem. Next to me, as always, my good friend and colleague Joost Dame. Joost, let's start with the DAPA-MI. Yeah, so not too many trials, but indeed five uh, important trials that I think that make sense for all of us as cardiologists and not just within the interventional cardiology field. So the first first trial we would like to highlight is the DAPA-MI trial, which was a large, big, randomized controlled uh, registry-based trial from the UK and Sweden, uh, testing the hypothesis whether dapagliflozin uh, was superior in terms of reducing uh, adverse cardiovascular events in patients post-MI who did not have diabetes and who did not have congestive heart failure. So this would really entail an expansion of the indication for DAPA at this point in time. Uh, so a very interesting concept in a drug that we know actually lowers uh, also uh, high sensitivity uh, CRP, uh, reduces inflammation and may even uh, result in superior outcome in patients post-STEMI. So almost 4,000 patients were randomized one-to-one to, -one to dapagliflozin or uh, placebo uh, within 10 days after acute coronary syndrome. So that entailed both STEMI as well as non-STEMI. Uh, Follow-up had to be for a minimum of three months and the study was initially designed for a primary endpoint being uh, all cause of cardiovascular mortality or uh, hospitalization for heart failure um, at a minimum of three months. However, what happened is that during the course of the trial, the event uh, appeared to be significantly lower than anticipated, which drove the investigators actually to change the design a little bit and also incorporate somewhat softer endpoints like new onset AFAB, diabetes, uh, weight gain or weight loss uh, and cardiometabolic outcomes in general. Uh, and changed this design to a win ratio design, which uh, changed a little bit the, uh, the statistics and the, uh, the final message, I think, that uh, the trial brought us. So on average, patients were at the mean age of 63 years, 72% uh, of patients uh, presented post-STEMI. Uh, and then for the primary endpoint, the win ratio was 1.34 in favor of dapagliflozin. That meant 33% uh, wins for DAPA, 25 for placebo, fourth respect to the uh, primary endpoint. For the initial endpoint being CV death or re-hospitalization for heart failure, 20 versus 17 wins, uh, both uh, highly statistically significant. Uh, and this benefit was very consistent across each of the pre-specified subgroups uh, without any safety concerns. So, so far, the uh, new primary outcome of the trial uh, that was uh, simultaneously published in New England Several concerns though, so if you look at the primary endpoint being CV death or hospitalization for heart failure in terms of absolute figures, we are looking at a event rate of 2.5 versus 2.6%, which was way lower than anticipated and obviously also uh, not uh, far uh, away from reaching any statistical significance. The investigators commented on that, that if you would have repowered the trial based on these event rates, we would have needed over 20,000 patients, which is uh, perhaps uh, somewhat uh, uh, too far-fetched to be realistic. Um, then, second thing, the positivity was driven mainly by reductions in weight loss and new onset of diabetes. But again, in absolute figures, one kilogram weight difference, 2% difference in new onset diabetes. So not really figures which make you think, wow, that's an impressive effect. Uh, moreover, finally, there was discussion on the inclusion of patients with non-STEMI, which is obviously a little bit of a different entity as compared to STEMI patients. 
um, so somewhat uh, critical uh, reviews during the, uh, the session. Uh, but that said, I think overall a pos positive trial, uh, but I'm not sure whether this will quickly change our guidelines. I have, I have some issues with how the study was eventually conducted. You know, this change of, of primary endpoint, you, you first have a composite mm -hmm. endpoint restricted to hard clinical yeah. endpoints. And then all of a sudden you add new mm -hmm. onset diabetes and a change in New York heart class and even weight loss. And mm -hmm. that these are soft endpoints. Mm -hmm. So, and they did an interesting analysis. So in this new primary endpoint, which was a hierarchical endpoint mm -hmm. of seven components, mm -hmm. then they looked at the same endpoint, but then only included six components. Mm -hmm. So they dropped the, the, the weakest one, if you will. Yeah. And then at five, at four, at three, at two. Well, the moment they dropped to five, it was no longer there was no longer a difference between the two treatment arms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from a from a hard clinical endpoint yeah. point of view, this was a this was a negative trial. Yeah, this was a negative trial. So I don't I don't think this is this trial is gonna change uh, our practice at this point in time. And obviously, we were looking for yet another mm -hmm. massive indication of SGLT two inhibitors and. I, I was a believer, I, I am still a believer that this, these are very powerful heart failure drugs, mm. but in, this const, in the context of acute MI, mm. I don't think we have strong evidence now to support yeah. it. In, you know, in it's, it, it's an interesting discussion, you know, as with most of, most of the trials we will present, I mean, you, you are absolutely right. Uh, conversely, I mean, we are now at a stage in which we are no longer able to uh, improve outcomes in STEMI with endothrombotic therapy. We're no longer able to improve outcomes with shorter door balloon times with a better stance for instance a less stance using physiology using imaging i mean there, there's little benefit to be gained and now with all these soft endpoints which we know are linked to long-term hard clinical endpoints yeah this is what we have but uh, yeah i agree with you in terms of absolute endpoints but, but yeah it's, there's it's, one thing to to, to look at, at endpoints, but it's another thing to add weight loss and yeah. on new onset diabetes as an endpoint yeah. combined that, with these hard clinical endpoints, yeah. right? So yeah. that it becomes artificial to mm -hmm. me in mm -hmm. a way. And yeah. by the way, maybe that was the reason that this paper was not published in the main New England Journal of Medicine, but in the sub-journal called Evidence. Exactly. And it makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's go to Orbita. Orbita 2, because that one was published in the New England Journal. Yep. So Orbita, uh, you recall, so Orbita 1 was uh, designed and published six years ago, the trial that actually uh, failed to show a, a superiority of PCI on top of optimal medical therapy in patients with stable angina undergoing PCI in terms of, uh, of quality of life and, and, and treadmill testing. Now, Orbita 2 was designed. Uh, I think the investigators learned a lot from the renal innovation trials that were recently mm -hmm published uh, in the in sense that again they designed a sham control trial in which were both patients and physicians were blinded to the uh, initial treatment allocation um, patients were taken off the antihypertensive drugs in the two weeks prior to their uh, intervention and then were followed for a 12-week uh, follower period for uh, a primary endpoint being uh, anginal episodes uh, at uh, 12 weeks so um, basically 439 patients were enrolled uh, who had to be uh, on uh, with or without uh, antihypertensive drugs. They needed to have angina. Most of them at the end were in CCS class two or three. They needed to have significant coronary artery disease being either single or multivessel disease as confirmed by angio or CT. Uh, there needed to be evidence of ischemia and as mentioned, they were taken off uh, their guideline directed medical therapy. 
So finally, uh, 301 uh, patients were randomized. Um, virtually 100% was in CCS class 2 or 3, and 80% had, uh, had single vessel disease. And then the primary endpoint was reached in 2.9% of the patients in the, uh, in the uh, PCI arm versus 5.6% in the uh, optimal, uh, well, in the control group, I should say, uh, reaching a, a statistically significant difference in favor of PCI, uh, mainly driven by a significant reduction in the PCI arm of daily angina episodes. So basically patients uh, who had PCI were three times uh, less likely to be uh, uh, free of symptoms as um, patients in the, uh, in the control arm. So with that, an uh, interesting trial uh, proving the concept that PCI actually works in order to relieve angina in patients that were taken off their antihypertensive drugs. Conversely, the trial still raised a lot of debate. 60% or 58%, if I'm correct, still had anginal symptoms. Um, we still face the, the challenge uh, with this number that it's very difficult to apparently predict who will benefit from PCI. Um, my take, however, is that we learned from Orbita 1 that drugs work. Um, and in Orbita 2, we learned that PCI also works in terms of uh, relieving angina. Conversely, we also know that drugs only work in patients who actually take them. And I think that is the, uh, the key challenge and uh, really nicely fits in a 2023 era in which everything is about shared decision making. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no doubt that drugs work, uh, but there's now also no doubt anymore that PCI works in order to relieve angina. So I think both uh, therapies should uh, remain uh, to be apparent in parallel and uh, should be used uh, accordingly based on the uh, uh, individual patient's needs, amount of ischemia, uh, significance of multivessel disease, uh, effect of drugs, etc. So with that, I think uh, interesting data, but again, a trial of which I'm not sure how this will actually change the way we currently practice, uh, practice medicine. Yeah, I think the magic word here was shared decision-making. Eh? You have yeah. to inform your patient that there are two treatments that mm -hmm. work. Based on Orbita 1, we can say yes, anti-anginal therapy will yeah. work, but based on Orbita 2, PCI might even be better in terms of symptom control. Mm -hmm. And you need to inform your patient, this is what we can, what we yeah. can do for you, and, and now it's up to you. And I know what I would take, mm -hmm. I, would, I would go for a PCI every day of the week. Uh, but um, <laughs> that said, I, you know, there's a lot of credit uh, uh, for the uh, Orbita investigators yeah, in terms of, you know, the way they were uh, executing Orbita 1 and now mm. also Orbita 2 with the, with the sham control mm. because really this is next level of randomized controlled uh, yeah. study data. At the same time, I have major concerns with a three-month mm. endpoint looking yeah. at angina. I mean, it's so irrelevant. What mm. is going on at one year? What is going on at five years? Yeah. That's what you want to know. Mm. What are the hard clinical endpoints? And I'm to this day very surprised yeah. that uh, also for Orbita 1, we do not have any written published data on what happens, of mm. what had happened with the control arm up to one year. Yeah. And there are all kinds of rumors, and I think there's even a presentation that suggested uh, that uh, almost all the patients in the control arm underwent a PCI or some kind of revascularization between six weeks and one year. Yeah. And now here, okay, we continue. Now the primary endpoint is at three months, mm -hmm. but I wanna know What's going on out to one year and beyond yeah. that? How many of the control arm mm. patients will end up with a revascularization? And I will give you that. Yeah. It will be a lot. It yeah. will be not the minority. And this is the essence. What, are we wanna, mm. what do we want to show here?
Yeah. You know, I, I feel um, that, you know, angina can be treated medically. It definitely can be treated with a PCI. And if you really want to get rid of your sy- symptoms in the long run, it will require eventually a revascularization. Yeah, yeah. There is no, there is no doubt there. And yeah. again, shared decision making, as you mentioned, I think that is crucial. You, mm. you know, you sit down with your patient. There is no rush, but either yeah. you go for a full medical therapy, mm. and if it fails, you can always proceed with an intervention, yeah. or you, you, you know, you give the opportunity to get uh, a revascularization from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. And the no rush was important because no events in the two weeks that patients exactly. were taken off their drugs. So, I mean, this is this, that, that's important. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Good. But, but an important study for important sure. Important trial. Yeah. ECLS shock trial. So, we mentioned uh, that we wanted to highlight this sub study of the ECLS shock because this was an important trial at the ESC mm-hmm. and there was a lot of debate on the inclusion exclusion criteria. And we already mentioned in the preview that. Um, three quarters of the patients had suffered a cardiac arrest mm-hmm. before they were randomized to the study. And obviously the impact of cardiac arrest on the clinical outcomes was of uh, uh, interest. And this is uh, the topic of this sub-study. Mm-hmm. So it was zooming in on the effects of cardiac arrest. It turns out that if they looked at the patients with cardiac arrest and compared them to the patients without cardiac arrest, there was no difference in the end, in the event rates, in the endpoints, so there was no ECLS did not affect mortality uh, in patients with or in patients without cardiac arrest. So basically, systematic ECLS in patients with cardiogenic shock, you should not be doing mm-hmm. it based on this trial. Not in patients who suffer the cardiac arrest, but also not in patients without the history of a cardiac arrest. At the same time, there is a safety penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, ECLS, more vascular complications, more bleeding complications, and then on top of that, longer hospital stay, longer ICU stay. So basically, I think mm-hmm. um, our takeaway in the summer is basically the same as, as today. There is no, no place for systematic ECLS. Yeah. I mean, there might be an indication for escalation at one point. Mm. You know, you put the... You, you, you treat the patient and you see that the patient is not making it, okay, then mm-hmm. um, you can uh, consider an ECLS. It's a different story with, uh, with for instance, an impeller device, which is a totally different way of uh, mechanical support. ECLS increases the afterload, impeller decreases the, mm-hmm. the afterload, and that might change uh, the effect on cardiomechanics, and that might definitely also change uh, the outcomes. But that yeah. needs to be studied. And those uh, randomized controlled studies are uh, underway. So mm-hmm. hopefully in 2024, the latest in 2025, we will yeah. get uh, the, first, uh, the first data of uh, randomized studies in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. So outcome indeed that we already anticipated a little yeah. bit. Uh, but, but to me, I think it's, it's still striking. I mean, 49% of mortality, irrespective of time to ROSC, irrespective of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest or not. So apparently with this device, we are at present not able to at least on a mean scale uh, improve outcomes even in, in, in a population of patients that should have had an electrate above three. So those patients were really in shock and, and yeah, the, the um, eCPR apparently was not able to, uh, to improve uh, end organ damage and as, as at least when, you, when that would be reflected by all cause mortality. So and, and then that said, Jules, yeah. I think in, if we, if we want to study mechanical support in the context of cardiogenic mm-hmm. shock, we need to exclude patients with cardiac arrest. I mean, in this trial, yeah. more than 300 
uh, more than mm. uh, 320 patients, I think 324 patients mm. out of the 420 patients had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. is, that's a different patient population. So uh, the call to uh, future investigators and investigations, please exclude these patients if you want to <laughs> study mechanical support in cardiogenic mm-hmm. shock. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, we move to uh, two other trials, the Artesia and the SELECT trial. The Artesia yep. trial was an interesting one in patients with um, subclinical atrial fibrillation. And subclinical atrial fibrillation was defined as atrial fibrillation for six minutes up yep. to 24 hours, documented on an ICD or a, te- or a pacemaker uh, in over 4,000 patients. And these f- uh, f- patients were at a high risk for a stroke because their chats vasc score was almost four. Their mean age mm-hmm. was 76 years old. One third of the patients were women. The inclusion criteria were either age higher than 55 and a chats vasc score of three or higher, mm-hmm. or age above 75, equal or above 75 years old, or a history of stroke. So these patients had a very high risk for stroke. Despite that high risk, the annual stroke rate was only 1% per year, which is quite low and definitely lower than anticipated. At the same time, half of the patients obviously were randomized to Mm -hmm. a full dose of apixaban. The other half were randomized to aspirin monotherapy. Turns out that apixaban significantly reduced the composite primary endpoint of stroke and systemic embolization with 37%. And this was significant. And there was also... Uh, obviously, there were more bleedings. We, we, you can expect that if you have more potent anticoagulant mm. therapy, you will have more bleedings. Although the bleeding rate, the major bleeding rate of 1.7% versus 0.94% was... In this high-risk patient yes, cohort. and this is manageable. And also of note, you had no access at intracranial mm. bleedings or life-threatening bleedings. At the same time, so this was a, this was a positive study. Mm-hmm. And basically... Um, uh, in contrast with uh, the NOAA HF NAT6 trial yeah. that was uh, also published in the New England Journal mm-hmm. a couple of months earlier, that it looked at uh, edoxaban in a similar patient population. That was a trial that was terminated early after the inclusion of 2,536 patients. Uh, why terminate? Because there was a safety concern, because the composite safety endpoint of mortality and mm-hmm. bleeding was higher in uh, the treatment arm with edoxaban, and it was entirely driven by bleeding. There was also no uh, yeah. effect on, mort- on mortality or on stroke, whereas in um, Artesia, we saw a significant reduction in stroke mm-hmm. and also a significant reduction in all-cause mortality. So why this is, it's quite intriguing why we have a, a positive Artesia trial sure. and a negative NOAA-HF-NET6 trial. Uh, I think there is a louder and louder call for a head-to-head comparison of NOACs, in my opinion. We should, we should have the courage to compare one NOAC with the other because maybe it yeah. is not a class effect and it is a specific yeah. uh, What was the effect? dose of Edoxabon and NOAA HFNAT? you know that? Full dose. Full 60? Yeah, yeah, 60. Yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. that might be it. Huh? But it's the same thing here. Huh? It's full dose of Apixabon. Huh? Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. But you saw the same in Envisage, right? Yeah, but Envisage is a little bit of a different story, although it's a good point. Also older patients, so here the age is also close to 80. Um, In Envisage, it was focusing exclusively on patients with uh, aortic stenosis Mm -hmm. and treatment after aortic stenosis. But maybe we are on something there. eh? Maybe Mm -hmm. we are over-treating 
uh, these elderly patients uh, with yeah. the, the full dose of idoxaban. Yeah. Might be, but that's, this is another argument in yeah. favor of a head-to-head comparison because this is an interesting yeah. finding. And, and I mean, the, the number of patients that, that would, uh, would apply to these definitions, it's, 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 it's high. Oh, yeah. So a, a yeah. trial would be highly relevant, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then we have uh, the last one. The fifth one uh, is the SELECT trial. I thought this was a quite an impressive trial. Semaglutide uh, mm. is a very popular drug these days, not only in medicine, but also in the lay press. Mm. It's a drug that um, will reduce weight in patients. Oh. Um, the trial in SELECT patients, uh, obese patients were included without diabetes. And then the effect, and patients had a known cardiovascular disease. So they had either peripheral arterial disease or a history of coronary artery disease or uh, stroke. Over 17,000 patients were included. The mean age was 61 years old. Uh, a, a fourth, a quarter of the patients were, were women. Yeah. BMI, amino BMI was 33, so obese patients and no diabetes. So the hemoglobin A1C levels below 6. Also low LDL cholesterol Mm -hmm. levels, only 78 milligrams per deciliter. The primary endpoint was cardiovascular death, MI and stroke. So the heart clinical endpoints, well, semaglutide was superior to Mm -hmm. the control arm with a 19% relative risk reduction in favor of uh, the treatment arm, uh, with also a trend to lower cardiovascular mortality and a significantly Mm -hmm. lower all-cause mortality. Body weight, as expected, decreased with 10% in the treatment arm. And then you always ask yourself, but okay, what about the side effects? Because we're all familiar with the GI side effects of this uh, type of drugs. It occurred in 10%, which is manageable in my opinion. I think so too. And only 16% of of the patients in the treatment arm interrupted the drug therapy because of side effects. So that definitely is encouraging. And I think um, the main takeaway of that trial is that we're talking here about the first weight management therapy that reduces cardiovascular events. And therefore, weight becomes a modifiable risk factor mm-hmm. for cardiovascular disease. And I think this is very important. So I, I, I see definitely uh, an uptake and a higher adoption of this uh, treatment strategy in our practice in the near future. Yeah, yeah. So this this drug is indeed a game, cha- a game changer, so to say. Um, conversely, I think it, 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 it's, a, it's a dilemma, right? I think it's an ethical dilemma. We now have something that can really help uh, to, to improve outcomes in these patients. Um, whereas conversely, we also know that the key driver of this problem is, is diet and lifestyle. And that is a little bit the... Uh, yeah. The dilemma, conversely, I think the same counts for all, all the therapy we have for, for hypertension, for instance, which is also largely driven by, by lifestyle. Not completely, but at least to a certain extent. So, um, interesting. Well, definitely something when it is available and reimbursed definitely something to consider because it will make a difference. With that, I think we are at the end of our wrap-up of AHA 2023. Uh, We hope to see you next year for the next round of View from the Thorax Center for Radcliffe Cardiology. Thank you for staying with us. Thank you. Bye-bye.